0: Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we are up to Exodus 24. 24. Which which means this is episode 25. Very confusing. Um, It is a little confusing. It's because we didn't, our first episode was not actually the first chapter of Exodus. But that's okay. Uh...
1: And we had a very nice time at the cathedral last week, I thought. Yeah, incredible. Uh, Though, you know, faces made for radio don't always do so well on uh, live streaming.
0: Well, uh, the weird thing about it is, dear listeners, what you don't know is that with the podcast, when Daniel asks me a question, I have like five minutes to mull it over before answering, and then I can just edit that out for your enjoyment, And
1: Daniel, you kept asking me things that I had to try and answer right away.
0: (laughs) It was incredibly difficult.
1: Um, I know the feeling. I know the feeling as well as I just, I didn't feel like I could be as on top of my exegetical game when I wasn't in my flannel pajamas. So, you know. It
0: it takes a a certain amount of liturgy and ritual to pull this podcast off every week. Um, In my own personal Torah, it is written that it must happen while I'm sitting at my desk looking out the window. It's important. Yeah.
1: It's important.
0: Okay. Well, anyway, enough enough uh, cross talk here at the beginning, as joyful as that might be. We're going to just jump right into this chapter here of Exodus 24. 24. Uh, verse 1. And to Moses, God had said, Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and some of the
1: elders of Israel and you should bow down from afar. Okay. So these two the children of Aaron become famous, right? Uh, Nadav and Abihu is how we say them in Hebrew, at least. Okay. Um, uh, these are the two that end up offering alien fire and uh, themselves then are offered up or uh, die in some divine miracle or some would say act of grace or some would say punishment.
0: Uh, you know, I'm not very familiar with this story. Tell tell me more.
1: Oh, I, I think it's in Exodus. Uh, this is, is one of those where I'm glad we're uh, on the podcast and not live. Yeah. Okay. What is the alien fire? So it's not entirely clear... Uh, what happens to them uh, or why it happens to them Uh, all that we are told is that they go and offer up a uh, sacrifice that was not asked for or an alien fire Mm -hmm. and immediately they are killed by God so listeners what you don't
0: know is Daniel just bought himself a baritone guitar with which he is going to found his band
1: Alien Fire Alien Fire, I love it love it look for their first album soon Uh, Uh, So I think we shouldn't say more because I have confirmed through uh, Rabbi Google that uh, this is coming in Exodus 30 for us. Okay. So uh, six
0: chapters on, we will encounter the alien fire. Okay. Uh So these sons will become famous, but not
1: yet? Simply know they're going to (laughs) die. As are
0: we all, really. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) But but these guys, you know, if this was a Star Trek episode, they're wearing the red shirts at this point.
0: Okay. They're going to die dramatically and uh, it's okay because they're not major characters. Uh, Yes. Yes. Okay. Verse two. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near and the people shall not go up with him. And Moses came and recounted to the people all the Lord's words and all the laws. And the people answered with a single voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do.
1: Okay. When is
0: this happening? This is a really good question because Moses has been up on this mountain for a while. So it feels like we're flashing back. Yes. Yes. And why are we flashing back? It doesn't feel like a flashback is necessary
1: here. Uh, agreed. Agreed. So this is uh, Rashi steps in and says uh, that all of this is out of order. Uh, or to say it more clearly, what Rashi says is uh, that the Torah has no chronological order to it. Uh, so, so he goes ahead and reorders this and says that all of this was said before the giving of the Ten Commandments, in fact. Mm.
0: Okay. Um, and do we have like some scholarly reason why this is out of order? Are, are we still dealing here with, uh, with the – it, has it been the
1: Deuteronomist we've been dealing with up to this point? So we got a little content there uh, for a chapter or so that seemed to be influenced by Deuteronomical thinking. Uh, but it's worth remembering that probably uh, this document as we know it today is put together by priestly sources – uh, probably shortly after the uh, end of the Babylonian exile. Uh, one of the ways that we can tell this, by the way, is uh, the priest's main book, uh, Leviticus, the guide for the priests, uh, they put in the middle. And it's sort of an a, a idea of ancient Semitic or ancient Near East literature that whatever is most important goes in the middle. Right, right. The hinge narrative. Okay.
0: Uh, so we don't have a change necessarily in authorship, like the same school that's been recounting the previous few chapters is still recounting
1: this. You know what I'd say is I think we're dealing with some content that's pretty sewn together. Okay. Uh, as a general rule. Uh, and you know, there are places where we can see clearly that we're dealing with Priestly content or deuteronomically influenced content uh, but but much clearer than that in these chapters is simply that we're dealing with lots of different content that's being sewn together.
0: okay okay, so maybe this is in this strange order uh, because when somebody was sewing together pages
1: into a scroll. They they just did it this way. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so much of what we think of as the order of the Bible uh, comes down to scribal ideas, uh, right? For, for instance, do you know why there is the book, uh, the first book of Samuel, and the second book of Samuel? I don't. No, they, they would not all fit on one scroll. But there we go. And Similar then... idea to the twelve minor prophets; they all would fit together on one scroll.
0: Ah, okay. And 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles are probably the same
1: Same thing. idea. Exactly. exactly. Okay. We are talking about technological limitations. Um, and so, you know, there are places where absolutely literal sewing together happens.
0: Uh,
1: well, this is very fascinating.
0: I So let me give an aside because I know our listeners love asides. I've been listening to this um, book, uh, The Good Book, which is different – contemporary writers commentating on commenting on scripture and there was one where the author whose name i cannot remember was talking about her father who was a, a jewish entertainment lawyer and she said that when he went uh, for his bar mitzvah he had memorized the raw portion of the torah scroll <laughs> therefore
1: he could not be bar mitzvah. does that make sense to you I, everyone's uh, dreaded Shredded uh, Bar Mitzvah moment. Yeah, 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 sure. You can't read the wrong Torah portion on uh, the wrong day. So you don't get a second chance? They're not like, oh,
0: Levy, you, you got it wrong this time, but come back in three months?
1: By the way, I just Googled, and the author you're talking about is Jane Levy. So saying that, that was impressive. Wow. Uh, oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <yeah>. All right.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. so Jane Levy,
0: an author who I adore. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but that makes so you can't come back. You can't be like, I messed up that time, but I'll be back in three months. And yeah, you, yeah, yeah, and certainly you, right you could.
1: Certainly you could. Uh, you know, it's worth noting that actually that's just the, you become a bar mitzvah when you turn 13, period. Uh-huh. It's the assumption of uh, responsibility for yourself. And okay. it is the first time that you can read from the Torah, but it th- there's nothing required that you actually do read from the Torah. It's actually a pretty recent ritual.
0: Okay. Well, maybe her dad was just embarrassed. But the nice end of the story. Yeah. But the nice end of the story is he became an entertainment lawyer and then he became so interested in scripture that at near the end of his life, he was presenting papers to the Society of Biblical Literature. So, you know. It's all good. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I don't. Uh, let's not go further down that little road. But um, I keep reading these things and then thinking I need to ask Daniel because I don't understand Judaism that well. And he will tell me. I don't know. Your Hebrew is getting pretty good these days. Uh, sure it is. Okay. So Moses has uh, been up on the mountain and now he comes and recounts to the, the people all the Lord's words and all the laws. So this is not the um, – The golden calf, this is kind of – Moses takes a break apparently and comes down and tells people.
1: So if you want to read this chronologically, that's the idea. If you want to read it according to Rashi, this is actually all happening before uh, Moses goes up. This is then how does he know God's laws and words? He hasn't so, you know, Rashi's got an answer for this, too, that we're not talking about the 613 commandments or the Ten Commandments. Uh, we are talking about the ordinances and the laws that existed prior to that. Um, ah. uh, so, in fact, Rashi says it's what are now known as the Noahide laws, the laws that apply to all of the children of Noah or all of humanity, uh, which are seven sort of moral and ritual laws. I think we've talked about them before, actually.
0: We have. I think the bishop was talking about them on Wednesday at the cathedral as well. Or maybe that was something else I was reading. I've been reading a lot of things. They're getting all jumbled together in my mind. I know this feeling. But at any rate, <laughs> okay, so this is Moses basically saying, okay, I'm going to go up to God. I'm going to get some more commandments, but let's review. This is what we have so far. Now I'm going to go get a bunch more. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. Thanks. It's very clarifying.
1: Um uh, If you believe Rashi. Now, we've got about three or four other traditions, too. I uh, decided not to go down those roads, though. Okay. Well, I always believe Rashi. I I have a a T-shirt
0: that says, uh, (laughs) believe Rashi. Um, Anyway. uh, Okay. So... Then it goes on, verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the Lord's words, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent the lads of the Israelites, and they offered up burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices and communion sacrifices, bowls to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw upon the altar.
1: Okay, there's a lot going on here. A lot here. Uh, So uh, what stands out to you?
0: Uh, Robert Alter's language is rather odd and confusing. They offered up burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices. <laughs> like, wait, what does that mean? Of course, you're
1: going to sacrifice sacrifices <laughs> by the by the nature of being sacrificed. It's a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so then, I think the distinction here is that burnt offerings are not eaten, while sacrifices are. Ah, okay, right. Okay, burnt offerings are truly what we think of as being sacrifices. Usually, things that are totally burnt up. But that's the real minority. The vast majority of sacrifices are, you know, um, Sinai style barbecue. And it, maybe that's what he means by communion sacrifices.
0: Uh, may, where do you get communion sacrifices? It goes on. Okay. Which so verse? He says, they offered up, burnt, uh, verse five, he sent the lads of the Israelites and they offered up burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices and communion sacrifices bowls to the Lord. Got
1: it. Okay. um, So there's lots of translations of this type of sacrifice. Shlamim. Sometimes they're called uh, peace sacrifices from Shalom. Sometimes you'll hear them uh, referred to as wholeness sacrifices, which is the core of this word, Shalem. Um, Sacrifices of well-being. And yours was communion sacrifice. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Interesting.
0: Well, yeah. I don't know what that's about. And actually, Robert Alter does not provide me any note on that. So... Maybe this is just his own little thing, but uh, then we get to the uh, to the blood. So
1: half the blood in basins and half the blood on the altar. So I love where we, where rabbis' attentions go sometimes because for this, you know, my first of all, my response is gross. Uh, <laughs> the rabbinic <laughs> response, uh, at least what Rashi picks up, is how do they divide it exactly equally? yeah um which i don't know about you sort of reminds me of every uh uh sort of liturgy meeting i've ever had um well episcopalians generally don't have liturgy meetings uh, you don't have like a, rit- <laughs> a ritual community uh, committee where lay people weigh in on how the rituals should be done and things like this generally not we have a book of common prayer that tells us how it should be no, done, that sounds and we do it
0: that sounds much easier uh, in some ways, I mean, uh, maybe sometimes it's a little stultifying in terms of being able to try new things. Yeah, okay. but, uh, it's great advantage is, um, at least for Episcopal, I you know, my dad's a Methodist minister, and I always thought that a lot of pressure was put on him to be like the glue that held the community together. He had to, you know, try to be like charming and charismatic and things like that. Uh, none of which I particularly am. So when I became an Episcopal priest, I greeted that kind of liturgical rigidity with a great sense of relief. You know, it's was like uh, no one is expecting me to be the glue that holds us together. The glue that holds us together is this ritual. And it's all set down and no one is going to mess with it for a while at any rate. So huh. anyway, anyway, that's a little off topic. But, uh, yeah, so the rabbi, somebody is
1: saying, how do we know the path the blood? And the answer is? Miracles. The angel comes down and divides it in half. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay.
0: So uh, that's an interesting function for angels. We've run into angels several times at this point, uh, messengers from God. Are they usually um, also God's people?
1: Uh, scales or dividing bowls? Uh, yeah, evidently. Evidently. Uh, you know, the rabbis revert to angels when they don't want to get lost in something is what I would say. You know, it's uh, um, not so different from the use of uh, the voice that cries out from heaven that we've had a couple times from the Talmud or uh, the other one that shows up in the Talmud is uh, the prophet Elijah will show up and give advice and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, angels yeah. are a similar sort of thing, right? Like we've all got our equivalent of, uh, the people arguing over which half is the correct half, uh, or, or what is weighted properly. Uh, and sometimes the answer is don't worry about it. It'll come out in the wash, which I think is what they're saying here.
0: Right. So do you find yourself at these liturgy committee meetings, just waiting for the angel
1: to appear? Oh dear God. Yes. God, that would be useful. Okay.
0: <laughs> All right. Anyway. Uh, okay. So what we have here is we have a sacrifice before Moses goes up the mountain. Sacrifice. Yeah.
1: Festival. A festival. yeah, Right. We, we hear sacrifice and we think something somber. Don't think somber. Think party. Ecstatic. Campfire. Great food. <laughs> music. Drums. Um, celebration. Uh, Am
0: I wrong in wanting to put this in contrast with the Golden Calf, right? Because that's a party too. That's just a very dubious party.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say that uh, they are similar sorts of parties. Interesting. Uh, right. It's, it's appropriate versus inappropriate parties. Right.
0: Uh. Right. Orgies versus uh, I don't know tea parties. <laughs> yeah, tea party has its own meaning That's now. This party seem a little timid. Yeah, okay, you're right. Sorry. Uh, coffee parties. Yes, coffee
1: parties. There we go. There we go. Um, uh, garden parties and orgy versus. There we go. Cucumber sandwiches. I'm imagining being served yeah. here, not with the golden calf, though.
0: Right, right. Uh, okay, and is that why half the blood is signaled out? So people have somebody to dip their cucumber I mean, sandwich. What's in. it called? Ajou, right?
1: Uh, where they give you the I, yeah, where they, they give you this and stuff to <laughs> dip it in? <laughs> well, I got you.
0: Okay. Cucumber sandwich or some sacrifice bowl ajou. <laughs> That's... We should open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. uh, you know, There's a place in Jerusalem called the Biblical Zoo. I feel like we should open up uh, um, the Biblical Roast. There we go. There we go. And let's just, what you don't know is
0: that uh, Daniel has been sick with the stomach flu for two days, which is why this podcast is coming out late. So this gross discussion, is also, it has another flavor yeah. to it. Uh, okay. Verse seven. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will
1: heed. But what book of the covenant? Yes, what book of the (laughs) covenant?
0: So if you go back to
1: verse four, I think it is, Uh, Moses wrote down all the commandments. Uh, Okay. So if you look at the Hebrew there, it says, Va'iktov Moshe et Kol divrei Adonai. And Moses wrote down all of the things that God said. Uh, But if you go to. Uh, verse seven, it says, uh, and he took the book of the covenant, uh, that we've actually got this book. We're talking about a particular written document that is being referenced here. Right. Um, uh, so why all sorts of opinions for Judaism, but any, any clue? What, what does Christianity make of this verse? What is, what book are we talking about here? Well, I always thought the Book of the Covenant was the Torah. That's certainly the Jewish notion. Um, and, you know, sort of the the most minimal version of this that we have uh, is that this right here, this Book of the Covenant is the Torah from the beginning of Genesis in the beginning uh, until we get uh, the giving of the Torah, Okay. Okay. So up till this moment. Uh, up until this moment. But, you know, there become other views in Judaism that says that actually the entirety of the Torah is given at this moment. Moses knows everything. Uh, and then there are other views that say everything, but Moses's death was given to him uh, because God never would have done that to Moses. Uh, never would have let him know how he was going to die, uh, which I hadn't thought of it, but I wonder, there's an interesting conversation there when it comes to, you know, 23 and me and genetic information that we have, and do we want to know or not? Um, what's the kindness? Anyways, that was a bit of a tangent. Um, but so we get all these other traditions, but we also get traditions that say that this can't possibly be true, that the Torah that we have today must definitionally be different from the Torah that Moses is writing at this moment, and that maybe the, Mos- the Torah of Moses is going to be, Uh, stitched together with these other pieces. Uh, But their views, a thousand years old, uh, Ibn Ezra, an important Jewish scribe, says this a thousand years ago, uh, that clearly we are not looking at an original document.
0: Yeah. I would, I would think not, but I mean, I guess I would agree with that point of view. Um, And well, I mean, I think, Contemporary biblical
1: scholarship would probably agree with that point of view too. So what does the Episcopal Church say about the am I gonna get this right, the inerrancy of the text? Is that the word that's used? Uh yeah, that would be the word that is used. Um
0: you know, the Episcopal Church has I don't know if we have like a standard thing we say about it. Uh we say that all of Scripture is inspired by God. And that kind of lets us off the hook in some ways. Um, there is, so here's the thing about Episcopalians is we're not a covenantal church. I may have said this on our podcast before at the book of our common prayer. We do have a catechism, uh, a series of questions and answers. Uh, but it is an open question of canon law, whether that can be interpreted as binding in any way. Um, we haven't had a heresy trial since the 1920s, um, which I could be very boring about because I wrote a paper about it <laughs> in seminary, but um, but at any rate, our you know we tend every you look out at an Episcopal church on a Sunday morning and just accept the fact that there is a different theological and scriptural opinion for every single person sitting in the hmm. pews. Um, so there isn't really any kind of given statement about inerrancy. There are some who are kind of fundamentalist in that degree, and there are some who are. Um, kind of so far rationalist humanist that
1: they actually don't really believe any of it. And will you find that sort of range amongst the uh, priests as well? Yes, absolutely you will.
0: Yeah. You know, when we are ordained, we um, say that we believe that scripture contains all things necessary for salvation. Uh, But I have heard priests mutter under their breath, and a lot else that isn't, <laughs> <Right>? So a lot of things that are not necessary for salvation as well. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there is a view on that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So anyway, we're getting to the use of this blood because in verse 8, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people. And he said, look, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has sealed with you over all these words. So they get drenched in blood. Um, and, you know, I can't help but think about all the way back at the beginning of Exodus when uh, Zipporah cuts off Moses' son's foreskin and throws it at his feet and says, you have become a bridegroom of blood. Um, this, again, seems to be a uh, a blood ritual, a binding blood ritual. Yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, I'll tell you what stands out to me here is that it's Moses and not Aaron doing it, right? Aaron, Aaron is effectively oh. the high priest. And the priesthood Mm -hmm. descends from him. Uh, And so as a general rule, these sort of priestly moments, we expect to be Aaron and not Moses. Uh, But very clearly, this is Moses doing it. And Aaron has secondary status, as we'll see in the next verse. It says, then Moses and Aaron and Endav and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel ascended. Um, Right. So it's clear that Aaron's there. He's just not the one who's doing this work.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this leads to another question I had this week in all of my kind of random and, and wandering readings. But um, do does do firstborn sons matter in Judaism? Because so many stories in the text, the secondborn son is ascendant. And if the firstborn son doesn't really matter, in some ways the the angel of death killing the firstborn of Egypt uh I don't know, like that feels like there's a a subtext to that text that says, stop worrying so much about birth order.
1: So, yeah, you know, what I would say is that the firstborn is extremely important. uh, And at the same time, there is something deeply subversive about the Genesis texts. (coughs) Uh, Right. I mean, that that seems to be the generational message of Genesis, uh, which is uh, familial dysfunction. Right.
0: Right. Okay, so we're going here. So we have this covenant here, uh, just so listeners don't think that we've gone completely free range. We have this covenant that contains all of these things up until this point, one of them being this um, question about familial descent, right? About who's important where. And then we have this blood pouring this priestly act being delivered by the wrong person you mean not presented Um, as the wrong person
1: just sort of we've got this ecstatic act and it's not the actor we are expecting who's up there leading the service it's yeah you know moses and aaron become a paradigm for later leadership that is balanced between what we would call civil leadership and spiritual leadership the, the high priest and the king that becomes the paradigm mm-hmm. here. Yep. Uh, but here we've got essentially the king acting as the high priest. Okay.
0: Um, all right. Let's leave it at that and go on. Um, I, I guess all these things are feeling pretty resonant in just this moment because the text is telling us that they're resonant. Like all these past stories matter yeah. within this moment. Yeah. They're the stories that define this people, um, and yet they're not completely logical and consistent. No, certainly stories, not. Right? <laughs> they they go all over the place. Okay, and at verse nine, and Moses went up, and with him Aram, Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu. Ab- Abihu. How do you say that again? Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. What? And beneath his feet was like a fashioning of sapphire pavement and like the very heavens for pureness. What do they mean? They yeah, the right. God this is Israel. a really
1: physical description of God that we've got going on here. Um, right. It is a God that you can see, has feet, and we even get a description of the uh, uh, what the roads are made out of.
0: Yeah. Uh you're not supposed, to, uh, you're see not supposed to
1: see God and live. Uh, certainly. Certainly, right?
0: Right. So then we have this Midrash. We have a couple of things to talk about here, but let's talk first about Midrash Tankuma Beha Allah. Thank-ka. Oh, we definitely, we
1: definitely <laughs> got to work on this here. T- tankuma. <laughs> there you go. Tankuma. Much better. Tankuma. Uh, how do you say that to find where we are. Oh, uh, uh, oh, this is a tough one. I give you that. Uh, it's the name of a Torah portion. Okay. Uh, do you want to read it? and then? Sure. Uh, so it's on this note of, <coughs> and they looked at the God of Israel. So we're told that you can't look at God and live. And it says they gazed and peered. And because of this, they were doomed to die. But the Holy One, blessed be God, did not want to disturb the rejoicing of this moment. It was a great party after all. Uh, so God waited for Nadav and Abihu uh, to kill them until the dedication of the Mishkan. This is what we talked about earlier. We'll get to chapter 30. Uh, and for destroying the elders until uh, a later incident in chapter 11 of Numbers. Uh, so basically, we're getting a, a a cop-out for the fact that these people shouldn't be alive after doing what the Torah says they're doing. And uh, is it their fault? Is it their fault? Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have a fault, right? There doesn't seem to be a moral judgment in this. It's just that this happens and you die. Okay.
0: Um, hmm. Okay, so that, there's that. And then there's this whole question that really this whole this chapter is wrapped around, um, which is what should come first, action or learning? So here we have Moses laying lay down all the learning in the world, Uh, including the fact that you should not see God and live. And then they go up onto the mountain, see God, and
1: seal their fates. Um, Did the learning really help them? Yeah. Interesting question. Um, You know, from verse 7, this actually becomes a core idea in Judaism. The last two words in verse 7 are, na'asev and nishma, and we will hear, uh, excuse me, and we will do and we will hear. And Judaism ends up putting a lot of emphasis on this notion that we will act or, or that we, we decided to act before we had purple, per, uh, excuse me, before we had perfect understanding. Um, and the relationship between those two things becomes quite central uh, that sometimes we have to do before we can understand.
0: Uh, okay. But
1: sometimes yes. the doing will kill
0: you. Yes. <laughs> It's the other thing. So so this is a really important principle, and I think it's an important principle in the church right now or in Christian life. Um, I I am part of – I and Jane Gertson, who has been our guest on this podcast, are part of Praxis communities, these communities of faith and practice in the diocese. And uh, one of the tenets, one of the ideas behind it is that we are communities of action and reflection. That is, we just go out and try stuff, not knowing whether it'll work or not. And then we reflect on it and say, well, did that work? If it didn't work, was it still meaningful? Was it generative and beautiful and good? Um, You know, what are the lessons we can draw as we wander in our own kind of wilderness of declining Christianity in the united states um so for me like these Mm. are really important ideas you know and i'm also i'm an improv comedian i don't know i told you you that no surprise yeah okay good so yeah so i and my montage team perform about twice a month and you know you go out on stage and you know nothing right um you you just go and you you figure things out and you're kind of guided by certain tenets and understanding and, and training for that matter. But at the end of the day, you kind of walk out there without any idea of what's going to happen. Um, You go and do it. So, you know, that too, I guess, I guess in terms of this debate, I guess I'm always on the side of action first reflection Hmm. later. Where, where do you fall in it? Do you want to, like, learn everything you can about something before you do it? Or do you just go rushing head-on, headlong,
1: and see what huh. happens? I'm trying to think which I do. Um, certainly in moments of stress, I tend to default towards sort of bold action, I think. In um, moments with less stress, I tend to default towards really understanding an issue. Um, uh, um, but, you know, I'm thinking about this in terms of faith too, because I think one of the one of the concepts that I have of faith is it's the ability to act with the knowledge that you have imperfect knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. That that's how I resonate with that notion, uh, right? How do how do I continue to act even though I don't know whether this is the right decision in the world? you're never going to know it all.
0: You're never going to understand it all. Um, you, I mean, so we, we act blindly, uh, many times, but hopefully, I guess this is where kind of moral and ethics come into it, right? Like hopefully we are formed enough already that we can trust our action,
1: um, to not be destructive or harmful to others. So, yeah, yeah. I I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the, the next step that the rabbis take is they say that the nishma, the second word, the and we will understand or we will listen here, uh, that this is an expansion, that initially it was just, and we will do. And then there was the insistence that, and we will learn from that.
0: Hmm. Right, right. So action without reflection is not faithful. Like, they have to go together, right? Like, just kind of constant, blind, spontaneous action without ever stopping to find the meaning and the
1: mistakes and the, the ways that it shapes and forms us totally. is useless. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the Jewish philosopher Maimonides, Rambam. Uh, lived about a thousand years ago. But yes. one of the places, one of the very few places that Rambam is not accepted within the Jewish tradition uh, is... Unlike the vast majority of rabbis, Rambam holds that every commandment in the Torah can be understood logically. He refuses to accept that there are things that cannot make sense to us and that are okay. Um, And he's widely dismissed on this. The the vast majority of the Jewish tradition says, no, there's all sorts of commandments, uh, you know, not eating shellfish, for instance, uh, that don't make any logical sense or moral sense. Uh, they're not utilitarian in any way, and they're entirely about acts of faith. And Rambam totally rejects this, insisting that uh, everything can be uh, nishma, everything can be understood.
0: When was Rambam writing? About a thousand years when, ago. When
1: was he? Uh, living in the golden age, what they call the golden age of uh, you know, Jewish Muslim Spain.
0: So... You know, if he had lived 500 years later or 600 years later, that move would make, would be very familiar. You know, the kind of, let us, let us compare our religion to scientific rationality and prove that we are as rational and scientific as the scientists, right? Um, and it feels like, so I went, uh, last November, early December, um, or maybe this was two years ago, to a mosque for a talk about, you know, what is Islam and, and don't be afraid of Islam and uh, let's get to know each other, that kind of thing, you know, a day-long thing. Um, and one of the speakers was this professor, and he started to make this argument that Islam was rational in the same way uh, that that scientific materialism is rational, and to me, it felt like a very old argument. I was like, I have heard this argument my entire career yeah. from the Christian side. I didn't. I didn't realize that Muslims were struggling with the same. Um, I, I don't know, like chip on their shoulder, you know, or um, or you know, we just all feel somehow deficient in compared in comparison to to scientific uh, materialism. And and we feel like we have to prove something in terms of it and, and prove ourselves in its own terms. I mean, does Judaism do that now? I mean, are there people who are like looking at Rambam and saying, there's our guy. He's making the intellectual move that we want to make because we want to prove that we're kind of physicists so of God. So I think
1: the answer is yes. Um, and Rambam is doing that. Uh, and Rambam is overtly doing that in his book, The Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, he is creating a Judaism that is compatible with science or uh, what he calls science, which is Aristotle. Uh, And, Uh you know, in many ways, Rambam solves this for us because he does a very different move uh, than the way that uh, at least many fundamentalist uh, religious thinkers make, right? The the classic example I always think of being here in Cincinnati near the creation museum is Uh, The argument that bones were put in the ground because of it being a test of our faith, Uh, dinosaur bones, right? Uh, (laughs) So what Rambam does is he says that the Torah is inherently true, and he says that science or good science is by definition true. And so anywhere that science uh, interferes or is in uh, contrast with your understanding of the Torah, it means that your understanding is wrong. Um, Hmm. so it becomes a move that just becomes normative within Judaism, uh, that says that, uh, science is Torah. It's, It's an expansive move. Uh, and in fact, Rambam goes on to say this sort of overtly. Uh, he says, you know, there's nothing we can say or know about the creator. So all we can do is understand creation. Uh, And he says that actually one day just as prayer replaced animal sacrifice, Uh, silent contemplation of the universe will replace prayer. I I sort of imagine that what he meant was Einstein sitting alone in his room. Or perhaps uh, more more appropriately right now, Stephen Hawking.
0: Well, that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, In Christianity, that might be called reading the book of nature. You know, that we have scripture, but we also have this book of nature, and we can know God through both. I like that phrase. Yeah. Okay, well, I, uh, you know, not to get too lost in the weeds here. Lost in the wilderness, uh, one
1: might say. (laughs) One might.
0: Um, Okay, so uh, this is quite an image of God. Uh, I mean, what we don't really get an image of God, but we get an image of the pavement beneath God's feet. Yes. And God has feet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So this might be as much an image of like the heavenly court or the heavenly setting of God. Uh, Verse 11, but against the elect of the Israelites, he being God did not send forth his hand and they beheld God and ate and drank. Right. So the text itself
1: is offering an apologetic for why they're not dying. Right, because they are the elect. Yep.
0: So there are certain people who can see God and live. And the Lord said to Moses, go up to me to the mountain and be there, that I may give you the stone tablets and the teaching and the commandments that I've written to instruct them. Okay,
1: so uh, Rashi says that now we are after the giving of the Torah. Wow, okay. Uh, how is that? Because God is saying, go up to the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, after the giving of the Torah. Come up to me and then I'll give the stone tablets with the teachings. I don't understand. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um
0: all right, Rashi, I'm gonna change my t shirt. Not Rashi is always right, but Rashi is frequently correct. After the giving of the law. Yeah. That's yeah. what Rashi says. Okay. Very odd. Um, and Moses arose, we're at verse 13, and Joshua's attendant with him, and Moses went up the mountain of God, and to the elders he had said, sit here for us until we return to you, and look, Aaron and her are with you, whoever has matters to air may approach them. So just as Moses was doing the priestly function a few verses ago, now Aaron is doing the magisterial Yeah, function.
1: interesting. Interesting. We've got a reversal happening right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, And Moses went up, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the Lord's glory abode on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. So, this is a a reenactment of creation in some sense. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and the sight of the Lord's glory was like consuming fire at the mountaintop before the eyes of the Israelites. And Moses entered within the cloud and went up the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. Uh, so God says, come on up here. But, uh, then like seven days pass where Moses is just kind of maybe on the foot of the mountain. It says he went up the mountain, but then there are these seven, seven days.
1: So they're easy tradition. I'm not sure if this is what's happening here because I find this all incredibly confusing. Um, There is a tradition that says that Moses stopped twice on the way up the Sinai for these moments of reflection. Uh, And actually in Jewish prayer today, uh, before you say the main prayer, the Amidah, you actually take three steps forward to mark sort of a spiritual move towards the divine in the same way that Moses did by stopping twice. Wow,
0: that's, that's really quite beautiful. I like that very much. Okay, so he... So our spiritual moves towards the divine are broken, uh, broken up. Yes, and modeled. We take a few steps of pause after
1: Moses. Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean that to me, that just makes out and out spiritual sense, right? Like I don't know, I don't know of anyone save Jesus uh, who, who takes a straight shot at the divine. Mm-hmm and maybe save well i don't know uh i have to say save jesus because i'm an episcopal priest obviously and you know it's a big tenant of our faith that jesus is perfect so um but for most mere mortals i would say uh we tend to stumble
1: towards our experience Hmm. of god i like that i hadn't thought of it through that lens before that's beautiful
0: Uh, okay. Well, that is actually the end of the chapter. This was a very short chapter. 18 verses. Chapter 24. Yeah. Um, and we're going to go from here right back into laws, aren't we? Except the laws are going to change. They're going to become about liturgy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get all sorts of things. We're next chapter. I think we're going to get a description of the making of the tabernacle. Uh, so right. for those of you who have been really bored with all of the drama, don't you worry. We've got exciting interior decorations coming soon.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you know, we're going from moral laws to uh, kind of religious laws, rubrics, etc. cetera. Um, is there anything made of the fact that moral laws are put first? Uh, no, not that I know of. Okay. All right, let me make a small point about it. It, it seems a little action and reflection-y, right? Like it's oh, like, yeah. let's, let's do all the action of being human and, and and see all the ins and outs of that. And then let's take it to the divine and reflect on our
1: humanness in the light of the divine. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah, I don't stretching. know. I like it. I like it. It's, not, okay. a, it's <laughs> not the stretching thing we've said today, so, you know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We're often stretching. Uh
0: okay, well, good job good, good job, Pearl. And 45 minutes, my friends. Uh after last week's cathedral extravaganza, that
1: must come. I feel me. like we should just put in 15 minutes of silence in a minute or in the middle or something.
0: <laughs> How about we do uh 15 minutes of you playing your baritone guitar and me singing Freebird, which I believe is about a 15 I long think we should song. do it. Well, you're the only one. Um, Okay, my friends. You have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. Lost in the Wilderness is brought to you by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, You can find out more about the... DSO Big Read and about this podcast at adsobigread.org. Daniel, do you have anything that you want to shamelessly
1: plug Uh, this I'll plug that I was on. I think I plugged this a few weeks ago, too. But I was on the Humanize Me podcast by Bart Campolo, 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 I think, uh, and just came out yesterday. So uh, find me there. Interesting podcast. Oh, cool. Uh, He's the son of a big-time evangelical, and he has become a uh, humanist pastor or chaplain. Okay, hopefully he's now the humanist
0: pastor who is on uh, married at first sight. <laughs> Do you know this the no, show, know this show. <laughs> It's a show where they arrange marriages for people, and the only clergy person they could find to participate was this humanist chaplain because uh frankly, any I think religious authority would be like, Well, we need to have three sessions of marriage, you know, premarital counseling before you can... Be married. Yeah, that work as well and TV. that would get in the way <laughs> of your show. <laughs> no. Well, not if they're supposed to be married at first it's sight, it wasn't. So, anyway, anyway. Uh, yeah, so everybody check that out. That sounds like a very good podcast and I will listen to it and link to it. Um, and I will just once again push the fact that in a couple weeks, the Saturday after Easter, these wonderful scholars Carol Myers, Teres Fretheim, um, plus Mark Stevenson of uh, Episcopal Migration Ministries, if I'm getting that name correctly. And Bishop Bridenfall will all be part of our capstone event for Exodus. So basically that means for the diocese, Daniel, this reading of Exodus ends in two and a half weeks. For you and I, because we are only on chapter
1: 25,
0: we we're going to keep going for uh, 15 more weeks after that.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. And then um, some people have already been asking whether we're going to do another podcast and we are going to do Luke Luke and the next big read. Uh, The next big read Um, that won't officially start till Advent, we think, but uh, you and I will have to decide whether we take a little hiatus for you to move to uh, St. Louis (laughs) or whether we just keep pushing through. I don't know. We'll do that off, off mic.
1: We will figure it out then.
0: All right, dear listeners, be good. Um, remember to bring your cucumber sandwiches to the next blood
1: sacrifice. Oh, I've been waiting to get that one in forever. <laughs> <laughs> you had that, that all
0: loaded up I, just, right I had now. a feeling
1: we were going to get another line here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have <laughs> a good week, everyone. All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>